Welcome to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. For more information, go to goodshepherdnewyork.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. And now a reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. And Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And then he saw the crowds. He had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles. Enter into any town of the Samaritans. Go, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And now, having heard our Gospel text read, we take a moment to open our hearts. So let's just take a quiet moment, and whatever you bring into this moment, lots of faith or doubt, just bring your full, honest self, and let's open our, ourselves to the possibility that God could take this story and connect it to ours. Just a quick moment of quiet. God, give us the grace we need as we come to this text and reflect on it. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, so we are basically 20 days into the national protests in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. Many say that we're watching a civil rights movement unfold, one that we haven't seen since the 60s. Uh, There's a widespread sentiment that's basically shifting and changing. I mean, churches that two or three years ago wouldn't acknowledge or speak of specific incidents of unarmed black men and women being killed by police are now doing it. People who, at one point in time, wouldn't bring themselves to say Black Lives Matter, are now saying it. And people who thought racism is the worst thing that you could admit or accuse someone of are finally seeing its pervasiveness. And they're normalizing it in its many forms in order to move beyond it. There are people who once thought racism was simply interpersonal, and they're now waking up to see its effects on systems and acknowledging its patterns And they're not settling for previous understandings of the gaps in our society, the wage gaps, the wealth gaps, the violent crime gaps, the executive board or uh, uh, board seat gaps, the entrepreneurial investment gaps, so on. Many, many, many people are listening, and some for the first time. But there are others, people who are unconvinced. We are, after all, in a country that's politically divided right down the middle, and some issues continue to signal allegiance to or disloyalty from a party line, a deep-seated identity thing. 
and there's a backlash that's happening. And perhaps you find yourself engaging with or even being part of that backlash. I don't know. And what are we all to make of this? How should we respond to these dynamics as followers of Christ? Conversations I've been having have sometimes been awkward and often they've been heated. And it's happening more and more as white people move from this passive sort of I'm not racist stance to beginning the work of anti-racism. And they're starting to taste what the black community has faced for centuries. And I know many of you are discouraged by this or tired already, even just 20 days after the engagement. But you also know this isn't about us. This is about something bigger and more important. Today's gospel reading from the lectionary speaks volumes to this moment. And before we look at the gospel story, I just want to zoom out and I want to remind you of something. When we cast vision in January as a church for the kind of community that we hope to become and we unveiled our name, Good Shepherd New York, I kept saying that it's our mission and our values and our distinctives that will center us in times of chaos and confusion. Now, there is no way that I could have predicted that that statement would be put to the test so quickly with a global pandemic on the one hand and a civil rights movement bubbling up on the other. But I'll say it again. We have to remember in times of crisis and in chaos who we are. We have to remember this as humans and as Christians, yes, but I think it's important for us as a specific church community with a unique gifting and calling to reflect on the same question. I'd like to center us this morning back on our mission, which is to embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors, both local and global. And I'd like to center us back in our core values. I mean, we right now need to re-up on curiosity. We need to re-up on creativity. We need to come back to generosity, both the spirit of generosity, but also material generosity. We need to re-up on holding the tension between unity and diversity right now. Because when we're confused and in pain or exhausted, this will help us to embody the love of Christ. But I think most importantly, we need to acknowledge and re-engage one of our four distinctives, and that is being missional. That's what our gospel text is about, after all. Jesus comes into the world with a purpose. He invites 12 people to follow him, to listen to him, to watch him, to eat with him. And now they're being sent out. This is the first time that they're actually called apostles, which literally means sent ones. My friends, I think right now, this is a moment of American renewal, and we need to re reconnect with that sort of sentness of the church. We're on a mission. We don't exist for ourselves, and we don't certainly exist for our own comfort or security. We exist instead to be a force for healing and peace in the world, a force of salvation, not the sort of spiritual afterlife stuff, but the earthy salvation that the Torah and the prophets and Jesus talked about. The Hebrew word for this was shalom. And salvation is seen as the restoration of shalom. And that is basically every sphere of life, the spiritual, the material, the personal, the tribal, the political, the industrial, the environment, the government, everything, the arts being touched and repaired and healed and moved toward the direction of God's dream. To follow Jesus isn't just a matter of you, or even you and God, or even you and God and the closest humans in your life. I mean, this is public. It took Jesus from town to town to town, and it sent his followers in the same way. It's a calling to let light shine on you and to shine light 
in the words of Jesus, quote, that they may see and that they might see the beauty of God through your good and public works. This is the city on the hill. It's the salt of the earth vision that Jesus cast on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what does it mean to be missional right now? To sort of activate our mission and our values and our distinctives as a church community in this city and in this cultural moment. I want you to focus on two dimensions of mission that we see in this story. First of all, we see the driver of mission. And second, we see the process of mission. Right? So the driver and the process. And there is solid gold in this story for us. The story begins with a summary. It's a summary of Jesus' experience with the people. He's been traveling from town to town. He's been listening to the stories, to the pain of the people. He's been looking them in the eye, and he's been touching them and healing them, liberating them, and announcing something very important that helps everybody connect the dots and interpret what this healing and liberation actually means. In other words, Jesus is exposed to many problems. Now, how did Jesus respond when he saw this stuff? The text says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now, the word compassion here is a fascinating word. It has a fascinating history. It's the Greek word splagnizomai. And the noun form splagna in its earliest usage refers to the inner parts of sacrificial victims ripped out during ritual blood sacrifice. Gross origin story. But it begins to refer to this seat of impulsive passions like anger or dread. But it's also linked to what we would call compassion. Um, I'm sorry, it's not linked to what we would call compassion until the Hebrew Bible is later translated into Greek. And here the translators, they start thinking uh, about this word splaga, and they start using it to translate Hebrew words that talk about the seat of feelings. Now, more commonly, it's used to translate the word that means, quote, to have your inner organs stirred up, end quote. In other words, it's a visceral response. But this visceral response starts to include wider ranges of more positive emotions like compassion and mercy. Now, this is where the Gospels get wonky. And they begin to use this middle voice form of the verb, like only then. Like nowhere in Greek literature do we see this happening. And I know I'm totally geeking out right now, but this word is only used to describe a deep emotional response from Jesus. Or it's also used by Jesus to describe a deep emotional response from a character in a story that he tells. So in all these cases, there's this deep emotional experience that draws him toward another. It indicates connection, yes, but also torment. Now I wanna ask the question, what does this have to do with the driver of mission? Now please don't miss this. Mission of God begins with a visceral response to the pain of someone else. The mission that we're called to join, it begins with a visceral response to someone else's pain. This isn't hypothetical love. It's not theoretical duty. I mean, this isn't self-preservationist conformity to a group standard in order to avoid shame or exclusion. No, this is a well of visceral turmoil brimming over because something has been seen. Jesus lets the pain of the people move him. And we should all be asking at this point, what moves me like that? Where is the sting of someone else's pain stirring me? If the pain of others doesn't stir you, it may be a sign that you're either numb or blind, and both are a form of closure. And it's that closure that short circuits the dream of God. 
Now we need to ask at this point, what provoked this compassion in Jesus? The story says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were, quote, harassed and helpless, end quote. Right? Hear that, harassed and helpless. Jesus knows what we're discovering in modern psychology, that human beings are social animals who flourish in the context of interdependent relationships, relationships where our power and our vulnerability can both exist. But things get dark and dangerous when human beings veer away from that beautiful and glorious support system. Sometimes that veering away looks like codependence. You know, when someone loses their willpower or their own ideas or their own voice to another person or group, they begin to need them too much. It's like this over-reliance. In a codependent relationship, we lose the power side of what makes us gloriously human. But at other times, this veering away looks like independence. When someone imagines themselves as buffered, as not needing help, as not needing support or assistance at all. And if codependency is a denial of that innate power that makes us human, independence is a denial of our intrinsic vulnerability that also makes us human. And this is what is meant when people say that the relationship between oppressed and oppressor is, is where both lose something of their humanity. Jesus looks at this harassed and helpless crowd and he sees that the interdependent support systems and relationships that help all of us flourish are not present for them. And Jesus talks about this as a leadership crisis. The text says that they are sheep without a shepherd. Jesus knew that they should be getting help, but they have been failed and they're suffering as a result. Now listen, when our support structures and our relationships fail us, we suffer. Think of the most basic support system, our parents or our caretakers. There's this long runway. It's longer than any other species toward a sense of power and agency. Um, there's a mystery, I think, here for us. We are human beings who need deep care and love and support until we can gain our power. And it's that care and support that gives us power. It gives us margin to face the normal pain and the normal struggles of this life and to meet it with creativity and wisdom. But when that's absence, absent, we experience pain. Now listen, human beings have an amazing capacity and can often weather the failure of one or more system in their life. Some of the most inspiring stories come from such feats. But when we lack the help we naturally need as human beings, made in God's image, and then you add on top of that helplessness harassment, it creates a pain that few, if any, can overcome. And Jesus sees this, and he is deeply moved. He sees a current crisis of leadership and people who should be caring for them, attending to them, guiding them, right? The people who have the help they need, who have the support structures and the family and the community and the society that they need, are instead tying up heavy burdens and putting them on the backs of the people, not lifting a finger to help. At least that's how Jesus put it. Like the leaders were hypocrites. They were leaders of optics. They prioritized doctrine and ritual, but they neglected what Jesus called the weightier matters of justice, of mercy, and faithfulness. And it was that lack of heart, that lack of care, this lack of leadership that was missing in these people's lives. Now, I think of the American church, especially the white evangelical church, that's been obsessed with the doctrine and narrow interpretations of morality, and has consistently neglected the very nerve and heart 
of injustice in America, namely racial injustice. Not only has it neglected this, but it's often underwritten and advanced it. It often couldn't see the injustice because it's been enmeshed in it from the beginning. And this is the time for the white church, fueled by the experience of compassion that we see in Christ here, to disentangle from the presence of white supremacy and to begin actively resisting it. Now, the mission of Jesus includes more than racial justice, of course. But to neglect racial justice is to be guilty of what Jesus critiqued the leaders of his time for, neglecting the weightier matters of the law. And so we see the driver for this mission is compassion. Now, I want to get to the process because the process to me is really helpful for right now. Jesus says to the 12, find a worthy person and stay at their house. Now, do you see how powerful and important this is? Jesus is saying to them, enter their world, right? Be the guest, not the host. Many of us want to join God's mission, but we want to remain in a position of power, right? We want to bring our knowledge, our understanding, our opinion, our funding, our strategies, our ideas, etc. Jesus, who's been moved by compassion as he went from town to town and from house to house, he knows exactly that the only way to experience this compassion is if you stay at someone's home and you enter their world. And then he goes on to tell them that they need to use the power of greeting, which is at its heart, what? Acknowledgement, right? It's sight. It's, it's a way of saying, I see you. To not greet is basically to take someone for granted or to ignore them. And Jesus wants their presence to begin with acknowledgement. Now, how do the disciples know where to begin? How do they know where to go, who to engage with? Well, Jesus basically says, be on the lookout. And they're to look for two things specifically, worthy people and deserving homes. Now, who is worthy, right? Whose house is deserving? Well, the short answer is wherever you find receptivity, right? Wherever you find an open door and an open heart. Now, I want you to remember, Jesus has sent them to these towns open and laid bare themselves, right? No money, no extra anything, no protection. This is his way of saying, open up and be vulnerable. Like, take a risk. Put yourself out there. Right? Get some skin in the game. Stop being a bystander or an observer. Don't just be an ally. Be an accomplice. It reminds me of the white freedom riders like James Peck, who decided to get off the bus first to absorb the angry mob who waited outside. Jesus knows that to join the mission of God in the world, we have to stop being a mere philosopher or a theologizer, like those who were supposed to be shepherds but didn't rise to the moment. And instead, we're to get dirty with the people in their pain through the experience of relationship. Receptivity is at the heart of God's mission. Receptivity is when open meets open. In a meeting with Pope Francis, we talked about how peace enters the world. And he shared with me that the world doesn't need more proselytizers. Proselytizers are closed, they're unmoving, they're rigid, they're joyless. And he said, what we need instead is persuasion. We need people who, yes, own a point of view, but hold it with an open hand and are open to the one that they're engaging with. Persuasion assumes that we are after truth and it takes courage for that journey, come what may. Proselytizers are afraid and they need to believe that they already have the truth in order to feel secure and strong. 
persuaders believe in the truth, but they don't think that they have the entire thing, right? They, like Paul, could say, we see through a glass dimly. And persuasion can only happen where there's openness, where there's receptivity. And Jesus says, go in that receptivity, look for that receptivity. And when you find it, listen to this beautiful phrase, let your peace rest there. Now, left and right. We simply often trust our power and our numbers to steamroll our opponents. And if we fail to win imaginations, my fear is that will come back to bite us. It's the kind of stuff that eventually leads to war. Jesus saw what they lacked. They lacked good shepherds. Now, when do you know it's time to move on from a conversation or a debate? When do you know you're wasting your time? What are the indicators that you need uh, to do in the words of Jesus let your peace come back to you. Jesus gave us two indicators. One, person or group that will not listen and will not welcome. Now, I learned this week that a friend who's now consulting many white executives about racism is regularly saying to them, listen, I like you or I love you and I hope you're in my life for a long time, but I need you to get to work on this right now. I need you to fight this fight. And if you can't, and if you're not willing, then I can't continue to be with you. It's not an ultimatum. It's just that I don't have time because if there's no receptivity, we are wasting our time. People are harassed and helpless right now and they need assistance. I've learned this quickly on social media. I mean, I should have known better, but there are many people in my life who disagree with me and they're open. You know, we disagree in good faith. There's true searching, true caring, true engagement, a wanting to learn and to grow, but there are others. Those who simply attack or who call names who don't respond or hear what's actually being said. Jesus says, when you encounter this, let your peace come back to you. Your peace isn't on loan for those who will trample upon it. One way I think about this is that our message is like a seed. You know, we should scatter it broad and wide and gratuitously, like the parable of the sower talks about. But our pearls, they're different. Our pearls are our stories. They're our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses, our tenderness, our hard-fought-for hard wisdom. And Jesus taught us not to cast our pearls indiscriminately. There are lots of swine out there. Now, it's important to understand that to listen is the same thing as agreement, right? I often ask, can this person restate my viewpoint in a way that says, I say, yes, you understand me. We often create straw men, and then we easily demolish them. And now is a time for listening and for welcoming, like the story tells us. And we do this when we do this, it enables us to create steel men, not straw men. And steel structures are strong, but it doesn't mean you can't dismantle them. It just takes a little more effort. Now, where does this mission take place? Where is the receptivity to be found and experienced? In this story, the context is in the home and in relationships. There's a peculiar medium for the mission. This miss mission isn't abstract, right? It's not algebra. The disciples are going to give. Yes, they're going to contribute something and add something of value, but first they will receive. And that requires time. It requires relationship and humility. My friend Greg Khalil, who's the founder of Telos, a partner organization of ours, he facilitates peacemaking pilgrimages to the American South. And he tells a story of Ivy Leaguers going to uh, black communities, learning to take orders from local black leaders, often in this case, black teenagers. And I think that's a beautiful portrait of the way Jesus sends his disciples out. They go with receptivity. 
They go to look for that sort of place of vulnerability and to be vulnerable, and it's there where they invest their pearls. You don't have the keys when it comes to God's mission. You're not in control. You're not the one driving, right? That's Jesus' pedagogy. You don't learn what Jesus wants you to learn without this process. And that's where the colonial mindset kills the mission. Those mindsets come with strength and money, locked and loaded, so to speak, with talking points and strategy. What does it look like to do what Jesus says here? This was a seasonal mission. It was a seismic bet with their lives. It was an investment. And then afterwards, they reflected and they debriefed. They zoomed out and they asked the question, what did we experience here? What did we learn? They come back. They tell stories of joy and pain, triumph and loss, clarity and confusion. And then they go out. If we go out and do the same, we'll experience the same right now. Friends, I encourage you to keep going right now. Be missional. I mean, we don't exist for ourselves. Oh man, there are times when we realize that we are on such different wavelengths and that it's going to take a lot of time and energy to get a lot of our opinions and ideas sorted out. And so we shut down. But what did Jesus say about the people in the homes that were closed off, that didn't listen and didn't welcome? He said their fate would be worse than Sodom. And I want to be like, what? (laughs) But I think this is powerful. Now, what is the sin of Sodom? The prophet Ezekiel says, quote, the sin of Sodom is that her daughters were proud, had plenty to eat, enjoyed peace and prosperity, but she didn't help the poor and needy, right? She didn't help the poor and needy. Humanity is always on a path to self-destruction when those two things go missing. To ignore the margins is to completely unravel. And Jesus recognizes that at the bottom of that apocalyptic pain and suffering in our world are closed hearts, closed ears, and closed tables. Love can't open someone who won't open themselves. Jesus is pictured in Revelation as knocking at the door. He doesn't barge in, and neither do the disciples, and neither should we. You can't force this work, but you can keep it going. In fact, to keep it going is an act of hope. It's an act of openness. And so may we join Christ's mission today as a church, fueled by compassion and stretched and grown through the process of receptivity. May God give us strength for this moment to wrestle and to learn. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you would like to support us, please text Good Shepherd NY, all lowercase with no spaces, to 77977. That's Good Shepherd NY to 77977. Or visit our website, goodshepherdnewyork.com. Thank you for listening.